Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. And I'm your host, Noel Jesse Hakenen, the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts. And I want to start out just by saying thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for the overwhelmingly positive response I got to this podcast when I launched it last fall. It was really an experiment to see whether this was something uh, that would be worthwhile to do, to continue to do, and the answer is a, a, a overwhelming yes. Last week, in fact, I was at the Exponential Church Planning Conference down in Orlando, and I had a number of people come up to me and ask me when I was going to launch season two. And so uh, the response has been incredibly positive, and I just want to thank you for that. So um, what I'm going to do this season is something a little bit different, I guess, than the first season. The first season, Recovering Hypocrite described uh, uh, not only your host, but also the topic. Uh, I tried to make sure that most of my guests that I had on here for the interviews were people who uh, could talk about the recovering nature of our sanctification and our ongoing wrestling with sin while God pours his grace out on us. And and that theme is definitely going to be here in the second season because I can't help but talk about stuff like that. But um, this season, Recovering Hypocrite is pretty much just going to describe me, your host. Uh, that's uh, uh, And that, that gives me the ability to be a little bit more wide-ranging in the, the topics. Uh, and so basically, the Recovering Hypocrite podcast is me as the chief recovering hypocrite uh, talking to other people that I know are recovering hypocrites, but that may not just be the topic of the day. And I've already recorded a couple interviews that I'm really excited about and I've got several scheduled uh, in the upcoming weeks as well. And so what I want to do today, just to start things out, is I'm going to, it's really in a weird sense, an interview of myself uh, a couple weeks ago. And I know that sounds incredibly uh, self-absorbed and, and, and prideful, so I apologize for that. But a couple weeks ago, I did a, uh, a, a question and answer session for my new book, Wretched Saints, and uh, found a lot of positive feedback from that. And it was something we offered as an exclusive offer to anyone who pre-ordered my book, but I've just decided that I want to kind of get it out there into the wild. And so this is really an edited version. It was an hour-long thing, and I'm not going to go for an hour, but I want to give you a a, a little bit of a taste of my book. And if you want to learn more about that, you can find it all over uh, the interwebs, um, anywhere you buy books. So you can find it. It's called Wretched Saint, or you can just head over to my website at noeljesse.com com slash books, and uh, you can order a copy there. And so uh, without further ado, um, here is uh, an edited version of the question and answer session I gave about my new book, Rented Sites. I was writing this book last spring um, and just kind of getting the materials out there. And the way that this works is, this is my second book, so uh, my publisher uh, um, unwisely thought that I'd be able to write fast. And so they were like, hey, we read your, your first book, you got it done real fast, everything like that. And so we began creating all this marketing material around it. We even started selling it on Amazon before I had actually finished the first draft of the book. And that's kind of a typical insider thing that happens uh, sometimes with some of these books. And In the spring, um, I was getting prepared to take a sabbatical, and part of the sabbatical um, was uh, some of the uh, elders in the church kind of uh, challenging me on some stuff in my life that I needed to grow in, and and, and then just saying, hey, uh, it'd be good for you to take a sabbatical to take some time to kind of work through uh, the stuff so that you can finish well, and it was just a really great blessing 
to have guys in my life that I love, that uh, trust, uh, that I trust, and they trust me, and they want me to do well. And so they're like, we want to help work on your life. So in the middle of writing the book, um, I am trying to work through some of my own stuff and kind of uh, just how I interrelated with people personally and all that. Um, and then kind of rushed the first tr version of the manuscript out. So the first draft went out, sent it to my publisher, and I hated it. In fact, uh, I remember telling that guy I hated it. Um, when I, I said, I just don't like this first draft. And my editor asked me for a video call after he got it, and I knew that that was bad news um, because it wasn't just like a, a text message or an email. He's like, I, I need to talk to you. And he said, the book sounds like... Uh, 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 he goes, I read the book and it was like an album with a bunch of uh, great tracks, but no cohesive theme pulled through the whole thing. It just, it's all the stuff that you kind of got in your brain and we need to pull it together. And I remember telling him, well, I had this one illustration that I wanted to use in the book that didn't fit anywhere. And he said, well, what's the illustration? And I told him and he goes, that's the book. That's the missing link of the whole book. He said, can you rewrite that? as a new introduction, and then work on the book. And the next 10 days after that, I rewrote 40% of the book. What ended up happening is this theme of, of us being wretched saints, of truly embracing the fact that we are wretched to our core, and we are beloved by God, completely holy and righteous in his eyes at the same time. And one of the things in the book I really wanted to do, and this was a back and forth with the editors even, was to work through the wretch part significantly before we could get to the saint part. Because it's only in seeing how deeply wretched we are um, that we can really embrace the saintness that, and the sacrifice that Jesus has given for us. In fact, there's the one line uh, that appeared in the book that I've had people repeat back to me over and over so much that I'm starting to use it when talking about the book. And it's at one of the end of one of the chapters where it says, you are wretched, you are beautiful, and you are loved. And that all three of those things are simultaneously true um, when you're in, in Jesus's eyes. Let me take a look at just, well, we have a bunch of questions. Um, just why write this particular book after Unchained? Uh, is the first question. Um, the, uh, my first book, Unchained, really, in a lot of ways, was uh, the core message I felt at the time of my life, the message I always wanted to preach, um, and that is that Jesus has set us free, that Galatians 5.1 says, uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free, so don't submit yourself any longer to a, a, a yoke of slavery. And, and for me, that was a verse that just kicked my butt in college, and this idea that we are truly set free. And so that was really, the, I, I was like, this is my core message. What's interesting is after getting that book out into the wild, what I realized was there was a book behind the book, um, and it was this one. Um, it is kind of the practical side of, okay, if Jesus has truly set us free, the tagline of the first book was, why don't we feel free? And I think the real reason we don't feel free is we have that faulty sensor going off in our life where we think we're supposed to be further along than we actually are. And so that's why I wrote this book second, because it just seemed to be in that same lane. Um, and I have a sneaky suspicion I'm going to keep writing in this lane because this, this is the message that God has really used to transform me and is... And I feel like he's relentlessly pursuing me with this message of grace. And I just feel like until he stops doing that, which is probably never, 
Um, I'm just gonna keep writing books about this sort of thing. So anything else in this room, someone in this room have a, a question or a thought? Yeah, um, that's a question that plagued me through the writing of the book, especially with the new, the new pull. Um, and, and the question for those of you on the live stream was, can we ever get to a point where we're living um, without the faulty sensors blaring in our life? Um, and so I will give you my best encouraging answer and my best discouraging answer at the same time. <laughs> um, and the discouraging, I'll give you the discouraging answer first. Because we are wretched saints, because we are sinners who have the flesh that we still carry along with us, that is always going to be calling out to us. And Satan um, is the accuser of the brethren. It says in the book of Revelation that he accuses the brothers and sisters, which is be the Christians, all day and all night. It's like his job. It's what he does. So you've got your sin nature, you've got Satan, and then you've got a sinful world around you. I think the discouraging part is all of those things in your life are going to continue to be like siren calls. They know exactly what to call out in your life, you know, right? They know exactly how to call that, and, and that's why the sensor goes off. That's the discouraging answer. The encouraging answer, and what I tried to get at in the book, is that I really think once we have identified the problem as what it is, that it is a faulty sensor, we can more quickly diagnose it when it goes off. So we, we are more prepared once we've identified the types of lies that Satan likes to tell us, um, uniquely us. Each one of us is going to have unique things he's going to call out to us. Our flesh is going to call you. Once we start to identify those and we know what they are, we more quickly can go, oh, I see that. I can see what that is. And so I don't think the sensor is going to stop going off. That's, that's just that's our sinful nature. And I just want our spiritual lives to be at a point that is better than me as a driver. I just gave up on my car. I don't want us to give up on our spiritual journeys. I want us to really see these sensors for what they are as faulty sensors. So um, let me go back to another one on here. Um, uh, who did you have in mind uh, when you wrote Wretched Saints? Um, uh, in a sense, I don't know how many, I'm gonna ask the question just coming through. How many of you guys are Rivites? How many of you guys go to Riverview? Okay, so the majority of the room, not everybody, but the people who are here live, um, you guys are the people I wrote this for. And um, I alluded to it at one point in the book. Um, I wrote this book with you in mind because it, it's the interactions that I've had with people at Riverview, people in this congregation that I'm blessed to be a pastor to. Um, I have seen the devastating nature of not understanding your position in Christ happen so much to people in our church. Um, and what I want you to know when God looks at you, he sees you through Jesus. And that, I want you to get that, but you only really, really get it when you really, really get how terrible you are first. The fact that your sin is really deep, but you don't dwell there. You say, and in the context of that, God loved me so much that he sent Jesus. In fact, I just, to tell you how much of a planner I am, I just wrote my Easter sermon uh, yesterday. So my Easter sermon is in the hopper. That's, that's how I, uh, so I'm preaching on John 3, 
Um, and just even John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The, the, the truth of that simple verse that we all know, I, want you, I wanted you guys to hear that. That's why I wrote the book. Um, it was with you guys in mind. So other um, questions in the room? If I'm, if I'm understanding your question, um, it's how do I deal with a sense of spiritual inadequacy um, and thinking I'm just not worthy to do something as simple as teach kids the gospel? Is that, is that a fair statement? A lot of times we have those feelings of inadequacy because we have this gut feeling that the people around us have got their crap together more than they do. So we look at everybody else around us and we think, I don't measure up to these people. But the truth is, I know these people, I've talked to these people, and their sin is as bad as yours, if not worse. <laughs> and, and, I, and that's part of why I wanted to write this, because the idea of of understanding that we're all in this same uh, boat together, um, this, I guess this car together. <laughs> um, and, and so what I would challenge people to do is two things. One, find somebody in your life that you would consider a very mature Christian and ask them about their sanctification. In that chapter you mentioned the chapter drip, drip, drip. It's all about sanctification. And sanctification is that process of us being um, us being transformed into likeness of Christ over the course of our lifetime. It's that crazy verse in Hebrews 10, 14 that says he has forever made perfect those who he is sanctifying. So we have both been made perfect and we are being sanctified, which is crazy. We're being made perfect and we're perfect. It's, the, it's Hebrews 10, 14. Um, so find some mature Christian in your life and ask them to get honest with you about where they're at and where their sins are. And what you'll find is the more mature the Christian, the more aware of their sin they are. In fact, you can make a case from the Apostle Paul's life that at the beginning of his life, he made a statement about a couple of the other apostles. Hey, they couldn't even add anything to me. And then the next thing he, he wrote, if you go chronologically through the life of Paul, like the next thing he wrote is he said, um, I am the, the least of all um, the apostles. And so he went from being the one that the apostles couldn't add anything to the least of apostles. And then he moved from there to saying, I am the chief of all sinners. <laughs> and this is chronologically as Paul is maturing <laughs> in his faith. And so the, it, I would say, talk to somebody who's mature and find out. They're going to tell you, man, I am messed up. The second thing is, um, basically, and I never advise this as a really smart way of studying the Bible, but open the Bible and point and read about the life of whoever you point at. Unless your finger lands on Jesus, you're going to find a pretty despicable person. And the Bible is filled with despicable people. You've got, uh, you've got Moses who spends two chapters trying to convince God that he's uniquely unqualified to be God's spokesman, and he was. He was a murderer. He was, and he couldn't speak very well. You're going to point at Peter who chopped a guy, swung a sword at guy, a guy's head the night Jesus was betrayed. Um, and you're going to, every time you point, you're going to find a really jacked up person in the Bible. 
And so by meeting people who are jacked up and pointing at people in the Bible who are jacked up, you could say, you know what? I can think I can teach kids about Jesus because Jesus is the only person you're going to land on that is going to be perfect in the Bible. So let me uh, jump to here. Um, you've spoken about being righteous and not righteous and not supposed to be freaking out. How do you actually live that out? <laughs> That's a good question. Let me know when you figure it out. Uh, in, a sense, in a sense, that is true um, because... Uh, we are going to, the faulty sensor goes off and we panic. It's just our first reaction, like I was saying earlier, how are you gonna get this thing to stop in your life? But I do truly believe that the more you reflect on Jesus's magnanimous love for you shown in the cross, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you can quickly get out of the freak out. I do think the freak out's still gonna happen. I mean, it's going to show that you're human, and I don't want to lie to you and say you're going to get to a point where you're not going to freak out anymore. But I would say go to the passages of Scripture that talk about everything you are in Christ. You can go out and find online in a Bible search engine and just search for the phrase in Christ and read every single thing that is true in Christ. You meditate on that more and more and more. You're going to be able to get out of the freak out faster because you're going to see how beloved you are in Christ's eyes. It's kind of like the way I would describe it is when my little kids, who are all old now, when they were little and they would have a freak out tantrum. So anybody who's a parent knows the freak out tantrums. And I just hold on to them and let them kick and scream. Right? You just like, they're like, they must have felt unloved in that moment. They must have felt like I was doing something terrible and atrocious to them. But their position with me didn't change. And the more they understand that in me, I think the more that they felt confident and less freaky out in their relationship with me. At least I would assume. All right, anything from the room? Uh, were your children excited to be part of, for example, Well, let's ask one. Do you want to come up here and answer that question? What is the question? The, come up here and I'll ask you. <laughs> this is my daughter, Emma. Was she and her three brothers, you're speaking for your brothers, Great. excited to be examples? <laughs> I'm sure in, they will be thrilled in, in about the book. That. Your answer's good. Oh, wait. Uh-oh. I think I broke the mic. Okay. No, you just took it off. There you go. Sure. All right. There you go. Um, I think that it's just been <laughs> a part awkward. of my whole life. <laughs> um, growing up with him as my dad, we were used in sermon illustrations and that sort of thing. And he's always been good about, like, asking permission. He's not going to, like, tell a story that's terrible about us. So I feel like it wasn't... It's like not a negative or a positive thing either way. It's just kind of a thing. <laughs> it's just part of like my normal life. <laughs> That's really funny. Do you have any verses that are encouraging and remind me that I'm a saint and righteous and not just wretched? And then they wrote, you're a pastor, so I can put you on the spot for specific verses. <laughs> and I wonder if that's because someone read my book, and in my book I stated that I often cannot remember where in the Bible a verse is. So hopefully that was a veiled reference to them actually having read the book. Um, the, the first one that jumps to mind that I think is just um, absolutely astonishing to me is Romans 8.1. Uh, where it says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is an unequivocal verse. 
It's not a verse that gives any wiggle room. And this is the middle. Paul in Romans, what he does is he kind of goes up and down and up and down. Basically like, oh, the sin in the world is tearing the world apart, but there's a savior, but, but there, 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 there's condemnation, but there's Jesus. And it kind of goes up and down. And by the time he gets to Romans 8, there's this kind of this movement where he's just like, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. That statement alone stands completely um, as, as the core of his message in Romans. And then he moves on from there. And then he challenges us in Romans 12 to live in light of that. But again, it's one of the things I talk about in the book is everything that we do always flows from what Jesus has already done for us. Always. And you see that in, in Romans. Um, Romans 12, which is command, telling us to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, uh, comes on the heels of there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So, is there another one in the room? Yeah. Yeah. So, you expound in detail on your definition of uh, the word grace. My ridiculous definition of grace, yeah. Yeah, so uh, do you want to talk about the process of you <sighs> Yeah. Something that, did, so did, did that definition occur to you and you decided to write it in there, or were you writing and you decided, I want to define grace? Yeah, actually that's a really great question. The question is, um, I give my own ridiculous definition of grace, which I'll read to you here in a second, um, and how did I get to that definition? What was the process like? And did it come as I was writing the book or did it kind of come uh, ahead of the book? So the first piece is I am always looking for simple definitions um, that can take a theological concept that sits on high shelves and to put it on a low shelf for people so that they can really understand it. And so I'm always looking for something simple. So, for instance, at RIV, um, which is the church where I serve as a pastor, um, the definition we use for sin is sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitude, or action. So I wrote that definition based on just kind of studying all these different theologians and their definitions of sin, and I, I loosely based it on one, uh, um, one theologian, but I kind of tweaked the wording because I like it better that way. But I'm always looking for that. So grace is one of those concepts that comes up a lot, and... When people talk about grace, they talk about like a one-two punch where like mercy is you don't get what you deserve in a negative sense. And then grace is you get what you don't deserve in a positive sense. And I've always used that definition and I like it. Um, but for me, it, was, it, it misses a lot. And all of scripture is about the grace of God. And so I was looking for something more robust, but I wanted it to be simple. So where the definition came from is when I first started to write this book, I knew that I wanted to write with grace at the core. In fact, the question was, is the book just going to be all about grace? Or is it going to be about, um, is it going to be about God's grace coming at us? Or is it going to be who we are as wretched saints? And so you'll see even in the name of the book in the subtitle, Wretched Saints, uh, um, transformed by the relentless grace of God, we took both and we basically said, um, we're gonna approach it from the position of who we are and grace of God coming back at us. That came from this definition because what I initially was thinking was it was gonna be a book just about grace. 
And so I researched all these theologians and all these pastors, and I found every sermon that I could on grace and every uh, dictionary definition and every theologian, and I wrote them all out of my whiteboard. And I was looking for something that was uh, concise enough. And in here you'll see I wrote down some of my favorites um, that I found. And what I realized was my favorite way of describing grace was not low shelf and easy, but it was high shelf and complicated. And that was the initial idea for the initial, what became Wretched Saints, was I was going to work through this definition. The whole book was going to be these four pages, just really expanded. Um, But this is the definition that I expand on in like four pages, is that grace is the ridiculously unwarranted and outrageously favorable posture of God that transforms wretched sinners into wretched saints and keeps at it until they look like Jesus. For me to actually get the definition of grace down, it needed every one of those components. It was kind of like an irreducible minimum, like like they talk about irreducible complexity or in math, whatever they call that when you can't divide the number anymore. Uh, I'm sure somebody smarter than me knows that's a prime, is that a prime number? Yeah. So, but basically it, it felt to me like I couldn't get any simpler than that and get everything about grace. And so that was, at the beginning, was gonna be the whole book. And then the idea was, no, let's work our way into that definition through who we, through who we are. So, um, in fact, that goes right with the, I guess, the question that just popped up, which is, uh, what does gritty, crusty, gnarly grace mean? Um, it's really interesting. I've read the back cover of my book a lot because it sits on my desk. Um, and I really should have it facing the other way so I don't have to look at my own picture. But the first three sentences, uh, it says, God's grace is not sanitized, sweet, or passive. It's gritty, gnarly, and it invades the crustiest parts of your soul. Grace disrupts your life by showing how sinfully loved you really are. And I've read this over and over since the book came out and wondered if I agree with myself because I'm always fighting with myself. I do it when I preach sermons too. I'm like, do I agree with me? Um, and part of it is, is it true that grace is not sweet? And that's the one that keeps catching me. Um, and I think it's sweet in the sense of people are like, oh, that's sweet, or in the sense of, oh, that's sweet. But in the sense of kind of saccharine, fake, overly chemically sweet, I don't think that's what grace is. And the way we talk about grace is it tends to be a light and airy word, but I think it's a dense word. Again, that's why my definition got so complex. Um, The idea of it being gritty and gnarly and invading the crustiest parts of your soul is I think when grace really does its most transformative work in your life is when you let it get to the part of your life that you won't talk about. The sin that you've committed that you won't tell anyone, the thing that you're most embarrassed about, the thing where you carry the most shame, the thing where you feel the most guilt, when you let grace invade you in that way, it becomes gritty and gnarly and it's, it's, it's not saccharine sweet. It's not Cool Whip. It gets in there and it's like sandpaper and it goes after you and, it's, and what grace does is it says in that point of view, I mean that, that's what it says in Romans, is while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And I think what that is saying is in your worst sin, in that moment, he died for you. So you, there's nothing, you can't go deep enough into your wretchedness to find 
a spot that his grace can't shine its light on. And that's what I mean by being gritty and gnarly <laughs> and crusty, is that grace kind of goes after that, that, that area um, in your life. Any other live in-room questions? Well, I wrote it with them in mind. Yes, yeah. How do you think it would resonate with non You know, that's really an interesting question. The question was, how would this book resonate with non-believers? I'm going to have to get back to you when I've, ha I've handed it to a bunch of my non-believing friends because I want them to read it. And my first book, I was always thinking about my non-Christian friends in writing the book because I wanted it to be a posture of if Jesus has set us free, why don't we feel free? Is an apologetic for Christianity. Like, it really is. Um, this one, I was so thinking about the Christian that when I got done writing it, I thought, huh, I wonder how my non-Christian friends are going to take this. My hope, and I haven't gotten a report back yet from my non-Christian friends that I've handed it to, um, my hope is that they will see their desperate need for grace and they'll see how much Jesus loves them. That's my hope. And if it doesn't, I'm gonna be pretty bummed because I really want my non-Christian friends to spend eternity with me and I really love them and, and I want them to come to Christ. So, so hopefully that'll strike. So um, what have you enjoyed most about having the book now out and released? Oh. What have I enjoyed the most? That's a weird word for me. Um, I guess the thing that I've enjoyed the most is that, um, that the two things that I was hoping people would say about the book, they've been saying about the book. And when you release something like this, it's really scary. Kind of, I mean, if you think about like, uh, a, a, a movie, uh, like a director, who pours himself into a movie and puts it out there and then it gets terrible Rotten Tomato scores and everybody says this is a piece of crap. You know, it's like, it has a little bit of that feel about it. You don't know what people are gonna think until they get it. And the two things that people have said is that it was easy to read, that most people who started reading it, read it straight through or read it really fast. And that was including people who are not readers. I had people who, who don't read books say, I read it in one setting or two settings. That was one of my goals. I tried to write it shorter, shorter chapters, low shelf, bottom shelf, even with that crazy long definition of grace. Um, and the second one that I wanted people to say is people began to tell me that they no longer felt condemned because of their wretchedness. That like they got their wretchedness, but they didn't feel condemned by it anymore. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that's Romans A1. That's like what I wanted people to feel. I wanted them to see that. In fact, I had battles with um, a couple, because I, I have three editors I worked with. I had a battle with one of my editors about that. He's like, you really keep wanting to talk about the wretchedness a lot in this book. And I said, I do, because that's the spot. That's the spot where the grace shines the best is in our wretchedness, not in our, where we think we're right. And so I think I've enjoyed that people have actually resonated with that. So I'm gonna read the last uh, question, and it's the last question we've got from the, um, the live audience is, is, what was, or the live stream, what was the most challenging part of writing Wretched Saints and the most rewarding part? I think the most challenging part, um, to be completely frank, was stuff I was going through in my own personal life 
um, while I had pressing deadlines. And so in, in a sense, what you read in the book is raw, what I was dealing with and how I was processing my own stuff, which is a really uncomfortable place to live. It's a place where I preach from a lot. So I, a lot of times I always say my sermons at Riv are what I need to hear and then everybody else gets to listen. But the book was a lot like that for me. It was, um, it was challenging because it was like, it was really hard to push through kind of some of that stuff um, and the timing of it all was just really weird. Um, the rewarding part in this is to, to see how God has used that. So like in Acts 17, um, um, there's this amazing passage that talks about the fact that each one of us is placed in, in a unique time and place in history where we can perhaps reach out to God and perhaps find him. And I think that relates to everything in our life. So if you've ever been through terrible pain or terrible joy or massive failure or terrible accidents or whatever, just add it up, that was necessary so that you would have the best chance of reaching out to God and perhaps finding him. And I am hopeful that the timing of writing this book was exactly what God needed to transform me more into the likeness of Jesus and to help other people reach out to God and perhaps to find him. I don't know how to work that out, but I know that that's true from scripture. And so I believe that, that to be true. So, so that was the most uh, rewarding and challenging. So I, I would like to ask you a favor. If you made it all the way to the end of this thing, <laughs> um, I'd love to ask a favor of you. Would you go online to amazon.com and write a review of the book, even if you don't like it? Um, it will not hurt my feelings, but it would be really cool for me. Um, and it really helps me just to be able to get the word out there to hear from people who have read the book. And, and so there's a number of people who have done that already. But if you would do that, that would be a great, uh, just a gift to me. Um, and like I said, I'm, not, I'm serious. If, if you didn't like it and it didn't strike you, Give it one star and, and be honest. I want to know how that is. Um, but, but just really to write a review would be really cool. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining me for this edition of the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. Make sure you join me next week when I have an actual guest on who is not myself. And if you are interested in checking out my new book, Wretched Saints, uh, you can do that at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ChristianBooks.com, um, or you can just simply head over to NoelJesse.com slash books, and I have links to all of those places where you can get yourself a, a copy of the book. And I really would love to get a copy into your hands because this is a message I am passionate about and I am just excited to see more people be able to really truly experience the grace of God in their lives by embracing the fact that they are nothing more than a wretch and so much more than a saint. So uh, that's it for me and we'll see you next week uh, same time same place uh, wherever you listen to podcasts.